Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Daniel 3, verse 26 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Joanna. Just wanted to say good morning, not just to everyone who's here, but to those who are at home. I know that a number of you are there for a variety of reasons, whether illnesses or other things. Whenever I look around and I see an empty seat, just know that I think of you. We spent time praying for you this morning in the prayer meeting. Uh, So we're grateful to God for you, even though you can't be here. So glad to be here with all of you who are here. have something to share with you, a little story before we jump into the text. In the summer of 1940, during World War II, more than 350,000 soldiers, most of them British, were trapped at Dunkirk. The German forces were on their way, and they had the capacity to wipe out the British, the British expeditionary force. The situation was desperate. There seemed to be no escape. It would take a miracle to save them, but they were determined not to give in. When it seemed certain that the Allied forces at Dunkirk were about to be massacred, a British naval officer cabled just three words back to London. When the British families and fishermen heard about the poignant telegraphed cry for help, they answered. Average, everyday civilians responded to just three words. They took took their merchant marine boats. They took their pleasure cruisers. They took their small fishing boats, and they headed to Dunkirk. For some reason, people are still not sure why the Axis powers hesitated. They backed off briefly, and what's known as the miracle of Dunkirk took place. These common, everyday people risked their lives to evacuate more than 
338,000 soldiers and took them to safety. What three words could evoke such bravery? What three words could evoke such courage? What three words could evoke such resolve? The three words that were spoken are three words that we find right here in verse 18 of our text. But if not. But if not. These words were instantly recognizable to a people who rightly understood this story. Sadly, this this chapter is often read and the story told kind of as a story of, well, don't be like that guy, be like these guys. It's often told and there's a focus on courage and what we need to do. It's often told without, without reference whatsoever to Jesus. But this story isn't ultimately about courage. It's not about three men who accomplished a great task. It's a story about faith in a God who can be trusted. Faith in a God who never leaves his children alone. The people of Britain believed God was with them and risked everything, even though they had no idea how it was going to turn out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were their inspiration. And this morning, we're going to look and unpack three observations about faith that are displayed in this chapter. We're going to talk about that faith expects, faith trusts, and faith believes. So number one, faith expects opposition. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now the first three chapters in Daniel are the only stories we have about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's unlikely that these men would have been surprised at this action of him putting up this image of gold 90 feet tall for everyone to worship. This evil king had already demoralized the people from which they came from. He had already stripped them of their names and of their identity. He had almost put them to death. If you remember last week when we were in chapter two, he almost put them to death because of his irrational response to a situation where he had had a dream and he asked people to interpret. He wouldn't even tell them the dream and they couldn't interpret it. And so he just gets angry and he's like, I'm going to kill all the wise people. Nebuchadnezzar was impatient, unstable, and compulsive, and I'm sure they saw consistent opposition to their faith on many levels. There's a reality when one has faith in God, the demonic system of the world will oppose them. It will. So we should expect opposition. We should expect there are going to be golden images out there that are going to coerce our attention. Because this golden image, when the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music in verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There, There are those that are set up. There are images set up for us that we're called to bow down to. 
There's a reality. Our brothers and sisters in China right now face that. You can, you can worship your Christian God in China as long as you do it in a state-sponsored church. That's why the underground house churches remained heavily persecuted. If you bow down to our God, you can worship your God. Now, we may not be experiencing that right now in our land, but for some of us, the golden image is the admiration and respect of others. Maybe you feel the pressure of being in the in crowd at school or at work or in your neighborhood. And some of the cost of being in that in crowd is that we are called to disrespect our parents or we are forbidden from talking about God in any way or we are, are forced to accept trends that, that make us believe that evil is good and good is evil. There's this message, bow down to me the image or I will throw you into a furnace of mockery and rejection. And it can be easy to look at this story at and stand in judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. No, I'm not going to be like Nebuchadnezzar or his followers. We quickly want to identify with Daniel and his friends, but we must soberly look at ourselves and ask the question, have we been the architect of our own golden image? Have we given into the temptation to call upon everyone within an earshot to give praise to our accomplishments? Do we want to be the center of attention? We should be sobered by this story, by the reality that there is a real fiery furnace and real people go there. In Matthew 13, we learn the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then further on in the chapter, it says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace furnace, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who reject Jesus Christ will endure a fiery furnace. Those who reject his ways and continue to reject him and live against his will, there's a real place and it is a just consequence to those who reject God. But the good news is, is God sent his son so that we never have to enter that place of God's judgment. We must simply repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus and we will be saved. So friends, if you're here and you found your life marked by setting up your own golden images to worship or your life marked by the fact that you are bowing down to golden images in your life that aren't God, today could be the day of salvation and you can repent and believe in him. And if you're here and once you have bowed the knee to Jesus and you found yourself drift, the Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and 
wants us to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you need to hold on to that truth this morning. Let this text sober you, but let it bring you back to Christ. Though golden images coerce our attention, know that even when we do not give in to those temptations, we can expect opposition like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because persecution is expected. Look what happened to them. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. So it wasn't light. It wasn't like, oh, well, there might be a few people that aren't following this new rule. No, these are angry people who are intentionally wanting the Jews to suffer. But in particular, these three Jews who weren't bowing the knee to the image. For us, John 15 says, Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Standing for Christ can be a lonely endeavor at times. In this account, there were only three men who stood in the midst of a great crowd. But remember what Jesus said. If you find yourself standing alone in that crowd, in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Faith expects opposition but it doesn't discourage us as we expect opposition because our faith trusts in God alone. Our faith trusts in God alone. Look again at verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, before even reading on, they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. They don't go, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. They don't, they aren't seeking to give him honor in this situation. They're seeking to give God honor in the situation. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Faith trusts in God alone. We live in a day where faith is both misunderstood and misapplied. I want to briefly talk about ways that what, what faith is not because I think many of us, if particularly if you've been a Christian for a while, you've been some, through different churches potentially, or you've read different books, like there's this thought of like, what is faith? It's this mysterious thing, and different people have told you what it is, and you're trying to do it, you're trying to do it right. But there are things that faith is not. Faith is not the bigness of our belief, like the quantity of our faith. This is when we measure uh, our faith by the amount of conviction that we can pump up inside of us. 
There's a belief in our our popular culture. Like, if you believe, it's going to be good. I don't care if you're watching, like, what are the shows out there? America's Got Talent or uh, American Idol or any of the new ones that are out there. What do they tell you? Well, believe in yourself. If you believe in yourself, you're going to do awesome. You're going to be awesome. Like athletes that psych themselves up for a big event. You know, you've seen, uh, even if you aren't interested in athletics, you see, as they get ready for the event, they come out on the floor because the music is blaring. If there's a basketball game or it's a football event, like there's stuff exploding and fireworks and everyone's just trying to get themselves all jacked up emotionally. If it's, we believe in this, we're just going to go and we're going to do it. Maybe practically for you, You have four screaming kids in the back of the van and it's pouring rain outside. And you say, Lord, give me a parking space by the door. I know you can provide a space by the door. I believe you will do it. And we rightly believe that God is adequate for the task. But what if God doesn't answer. Well, that must mean our faith isn't good enough. Faith is not creating enough feeling inside of us. Faith is not conjuring up something in our brains as if it were some kind of mind game, convincing ourselves we really, really, really believe. That's not faith. That's faith in faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not pump themselves up. Real faith locks on to God and not the bigness of our belief. What sticks out in this passage is our God in whom we serve. In verse 17, it focuses on him. We pray for what we think is right, but then we trust the Lord to do what is right. There's an old hymn that has a phrase, whatever my God ordains as right. Friends, let us not be captured by the fantasy that if we have big enough faith, then all of our difficulties will go away. Our faith, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is not rooted in present circumstances, but in God. So faith is not in the bigness of our belief. Faith is also not in the confidence of our belief or the quality of our belief or what we emphasize our belief on. This is when we believe if we insist hard enough, if we believe long enough, then God will answer. As if he's some kind of genie, my wish is your command. Being protected from trials because we insist hard enough is is not supported in in scripture. They, They weren't experiencing what they experienced because they believed a long time. This is a short thing that was going to happen for them. It was eminent. But the Bible records for us something different. If we just even look at the life of Paul, Paul dealt with a bunch of stuff, sickness and disaster, 
that God did not prevent. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul prayed three times to remove his thorn in the flesh. God did not remove it. What did we learn? What do we learn there? God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In 1 Timothy, Paul was encouraged. He encouraged Timothy to stop drinking only water, but take a little bit of wine for his stomach ailments. Why didn't Paul just heal Timothy? I mean, he did miraculous things. In 2 Timothy, Paul left a helper named Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why did Paul leave him sick if his faith could not, if, if his faith could heal him, why did Paul leave him sick? But in that account, neither Paul nor Trophimus are said to have failed the Lord. And that's not to mention all the hard, other hardships that Paul experienced. So to Paul, illness was not a sign of weak faith. Illness and hardship plagued his ministry. And Paul is not the only Christian who faced trials. If we were to read through Hebrews chapter 11, we get a list of people added to the list of those well-known for faith that resulted in great spiritual victories are descriptions of believers who suffered great hardships. They had been tortured, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, pierced with swords, sawed in two, made destitute, deprived, and homeless. And all of them were commended for their faith. Should we have firm resolve? Yes. Is our resolve the reason our prayers are answered? No. They are answered because of God's goodness and his mercy. And our confidence should not be in what we want God to do. Our confidence should be in God alone. And our faith is also not our expectation for a specific answer. This is like when we force confidence, when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is what God is going to do. It's pretty clear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't know what God is going to do. They are trusting in God, but if not. If they knew what God was going to do, if they were in that place, verse 18 wouldn't be there. But it's there because they didn't know what God would do. Faith is simply being faithful, not knowing what God is going to do because we can't force God to do anything. I read a story about a woman who attended a prayer meeting. This was her experience. She praised God because she was sure that she, that, that God was going to heal her dog. The day the dog got sick, she just happened to read in the Psalms that God heals all your diseases. So she explained that this apparent coincidence was God providing a leading for her, assuring her that God would heal her dog. Well, this well-meaning, poorly informed woman had tied her faith to her ability to read God's will. And to read it in sequence of circumstances, unfortunately, the circumstances were about to change for her. At the next prayer meeting, this same woman told the group her husband had experienced a heart attack. 
Obviously, she surmised, God wasn't telling me that he would heal my dog. No, God was telling me he would heal my husband. That's what I was reading into the psalm. What's the problem with this practice? What if in the next week she reads Numbers 14, 12, which says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. So what if her son gets sick? What does she do then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego define faith for us by their righteous commitment to do God's will rather than by any mystical ability to read God's faith or to read the results that God's will have. We do not have faith because all is going well. We do not lose faith because something goes poorly. Our faith is not in what circumstances might indicate, but in God's greater purposes. So when we say that life's difficulties are the result of our faith, then either our faith is inadequate or God is inadequate. Either way, that can be a recipe for despair for us. Faith is not our confidence in belief. Faith is our confidence in God. Brian Chapel said, great faith does not claim to know what only God can know. It claims to know the God who knows. That's what faith is. Because remember, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had faith. And where did it bring them? To the edge of a fiery furnace. That's where it brought them. So their faith brought them to a trial. So what is faith? Faith is trust in God alone because we believe that God is able. Ephesians 3 tells us God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. In Daniel 17, they believed our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. They, they believed because they knew he was able. They had known that God had delivered them before, delivered them from this king. They had known that their God had delivered their people time and again because they had read it in the scriptures, they had heard it told to them from their youth, God is able. The God who did end up delivering them, whom Shad, who uh, Nebuchadnezzar declared that there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. In verse 29, even he came to know that, but they didn't know that was going to happen when they were standing before Nebuchadnezzar. But they didn't know that, they didn't need to know that was going to happen. All they needed to know was that God is able. They knew God. And they believed God was good. God could certainly rescue them from pagan idolatry by delivering them out of the furnace. And God did deliver them out of the furnace. But whatever he chooses is good. One way of being delivered is to be delivered out of the furnace, but another way to be delivered is to be consumed in the fire. 
of that furnace and to go to a place where idolatry no longer exists in God's presence. Because when we die in Christ, that's what happens for us. Death is not a bad thing. Why did Paul say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Why did he say that? Because it's better. To live is great. It's Christ, but to die is gain. Brian Chappell said the only reason that we do not value the provision of heaven as a glorious and good alternative to suffering on earth is that we do not conceive of it being as great, good, and real as the Bible says. But it is real. It is great, and it is good. In heaven, all pain and suffering are banished. So he's good. Whether it's endurance, whether it's deliverance, or whether it's death, he's good. And because God is able and because he's good, we can go and trust God alone, regardless of what comes. Faith is not in a result or in an answer. Faith is in God alone. And that leads us to the reality that faith believes we're not alone. Look at verses 24 and 25, as we've already read this morning. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Some commentators say this was the pre-incarnate Christ. Some say this was just an angel of the Lord. It doesn't matter who it was. The reality is, is they were not alone in the fire. They were not alone. They were not alone. And this is what it said, the effects of the fire on them. The fire, in verse 27, the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head, remember, early on in the chapter, the, the men who threw them into the fire died because the effect of the fire, that was the effect the fire had on them. But these men weren't even touched. And the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of the fire had come upon them. This time of year, it's getting colder. People have fires in their backyard and you know that if you're within five feet of that fire and the wind blows, you're gonna smell like that fire until you go change your clothes and take a shower. They were in the midst of the fire and they were not just unharmed. Their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. He knew Isaiah had said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. That's Isaiah 43, 2. Notice even in that verse that God didn't promise to take his people around the waters or keep the fire far from them. On the contrary, tribulation was anticipated. It was the path for his saints, both then and and now, because he is with us. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God from Romans 8. 
We are not alone in the face of death. Live or die. These men were committed to be faithful to God. Faith is not about preserving our lives. It's believing that we're not alone. Believing we are in the presence of a holy and all-powerful God and he's going to use this to bring him glory. He is God and he absolutely can deliver us. But if not... If he chooses not to deliver us, we are not alone in the face of the adversity or even in the face of death because he's going to use our obedience to bring him glory. The men of Dunkirk who got in their boats had no idea that they would survive and some of them didn't as they were common people and went to go get those soldiers they didn't know. But their resolve was not in what they could do. In their little fishing boats, their resolve was in God. And you may know the story of Jim Elliott and his friends who went to reach the Aka tribe and they were brutally murdered. But though they were brutally murdered, you, the world looks on and say, that's a fail. But God even used that to bring that tribe to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was good for them and it was even good for the tribe. Because John 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We are not alone, even in the face of death. How that could be the message that could be helping our nation or our world right now. But we are also not alone in this life. God does not give us grace for every situation we can imagine. God has not given you grace today to stand on the edge of a burning, fiery furnace, a literal burning, fiery furnace, because that's not where you are right now. But I can assure you that God will give you the grace for what you need when you need it. You don't need to go, well, I don't have grace for that. Well, you're not there right now, but you are where you are. You are where you're seated. You are in the place that you're dealing with the challenges you are in your life. And God is there with you and he's going to meet you. Because the Bible, in the Bible, fire is often associated with two things. It's associated with judgment and refinement. And judgment, I mean, you know, like Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19, the Lord rained down sulfur and fire or revelation when the beast and the false prophet are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. That's fire when reference to judgment, but fire is also used in refinement. As we studied in 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. For those who know Christ, the fire of trials does not destroy us. They reveal who we belong to. They burn off the stuff that we love that we shouldn't. 
Sometimes they expose that we love wrong things, but they expose them only to help us not love those things anymore. Only those who trust in Jesus are safely brought through the fire. Faith knows there's another in the fire with us. Remember, Jesus promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. But remember, Jesus is a better Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were imperfect men that granted that were granted mercy from God to go through a fire unscathed. Jesus was a perfect man who felt the flames of God's wrath. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire with another. Jesus endured the cross alone. The father turned his face away. Jesus was completely alone. He personally paid the price of my hell and your hell during those six hours on the cross that I might pass through the threatening fire unburned and emerge safely on the other side. What is more perfect is his perfect faithfulness is now credited to my account as if it were my own. So we go through the fire unscathed because Jesus endured the wrath of God. So the point of the story, friends, is not go Christian, go be faithful, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go get it done. Stories to tell us there's a God we can trust. There's a God who has already been faithful. And yes, we want to be faithful, but yes, we want to be faithful. We will fail in our efforts. We will come up short, but we must take away from the stories that God did not come up short. Jesus didn't come up short. And when we fail, we claim forgiveness on the grounds of his faithful life and the death that he endured on the cross that we deserved. So this morning, we're gonna take the time to remember that sacrifice by taking the Lord's Supper together. So you probably received this as you came in. And if you're here this morning and you haven't ever trusted in Jesus, I'd encourage you not to open this up and not to take it, but to consider that God wants you to trust in Christ. He wants you to follow him so that you can be brought safely through the fire. As you open this, let's just reflect. Some comments made from Dr. Ian Ducudo. He said, the cross is the warrant for confidence in God. Despite a lifelong heartache, had any of us stood at the foot of the cross and seen the horror, we would have cried out to God to stop the suffering. But God knew better. He did not stop the cruelty until the life of the one who hung there had bled away. The agony did not mean that God failed, 
nor that the faith of the one who died was weak. There was a great suffering, but in the suffering was a purpose so loving, so powerful, and so good that our eternity changed as a result. Our sins were washed away. When our focus remains on the cross, our faith will not waver through troubles, though troubles come and human answers fail. Such faith does not depend on emotional intensity, on knowing what should happen, or on a certainty of what God will do. True biblical faith trusts that God knows and is doing what is right because he gave us Jesus. So Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it because that was representing the body that he would give on the cross for us. Let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup, which held wine, which would represent the blood that he would shed, that would wash every time that we didn't trust in faith, that would wash that lack of trust or the sin or the pride or anything. He would wash it away. Let's take the cup together. The Bible says, for as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why don't we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.